Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome. Woo. Coming through. Here we go. All right. Good to see you all here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, so glad that you are here. And I want to invite you to open up your Bible to the book of Exodus, chapter 4. Uh, we are starting in verse 18, where we're continuing really the sermon series that we've been in for several months now, uh, studying the book of Exodus little by little, which is pretty normal here at FBC. That's kind of how we do the Sunday morning preaching. The sermon series is usually just through a book of the Bible, where we walk little by little. And so we're in Exodus chapter 4, verse 18. And we're not going to have the words on the screen this morning, actually. So again, you will need a hard copy. Uh, there's Bibles on the seats in front of you. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, or again, if you want to pull it up on your phone, your device, however you need to find Exodus 4, verse 18, Go for it. You know, I'm convinced that every time you have to move to a new house, it takes about six months off of your life. <laughs> That's, and if you do the math, that might be a little scary. If you look back in your life, how many times you've moved. That's not necessarily a word from the Lord. That's just an opinion of Pastor Matt, okay? But I think it takes about six months off of your life. It's exhausting. And difficult, even if it's for a good reason, even if you're excited about maybe a new house or a new area you're moving to, maybe a new job that brought that move about, even with the excitement, it's still overwhelming and tiring. There's all this packing you have to do and then unpacking and undecorating and redecorating and making sure the timing's good and being between houses and between places and feeling unsettled is never fun. It's difficult. Transition can be hard. And we see actually in our passage this morning that Moses kind of finds himself in a season of transition where he's going from the land of Midian where he's been living out in the wilderness for several decades and God has called him to go back to Egypt. And so he's going to pick up his family and move far away to Egypt to see what God has for him there. And as we read the text, you'll see that it's a little bit disjointed or it feels a little bit disjointed as we read through it. There's a lot of things going on, a lot of different themes that we're going to see in the text. It, it feels kind of like life does when you're moving, like transition, like difficult things, like kind of a lot to take in all at one time. And so, from verse 18 to the end of chapter 4, we're just going to jump in and walk through it together and see what the Lord has for us. There's going to be a lot here. So let's get started in verse 18 as the story of Exodus continues. It says, Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Now, Moses knows that they're alive. God has told them as much, but this is simply a, a Hebrew way of saying, I'm going to go check in on their well-being. Jethro said, go, I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. And so Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. So after this 
powerful encounter with God in chapter 3. And the first part of chapter 4, we see Moses is on the move with his family headed back to Egypt. If you remember in chapter 2, he killed a man and then Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses. So he was essentially a fugitive. He was on the run, but now he's been informed that those who wanted to kill him are dead. And so Moses can return. And so he goes in verse 18 to his father-in-law, says, hey, Jethro, I've got to go. And Jethro says, okay. Moses gets his wife and his sons ready. And the repeated phrase in this sequence is return or go back. Going back to where he once was, where he was born and raised. And I I imagine that would stir up all kinds of emotions as he prepares to return to the place he once called home, to the special task that God has put in front of him. I mean, this is probably, if this was a movie, this would be kind of a scene where there's this montage with like emotional, upbeat music going on in the background where Moses shows Moses talking to Jethro, his father-in-law, and they have a big hug and embrace. And then the next scene is Moses packing up his things into boxes and, you know, taking his coffee maker and putting it away. And then Zipporah, his wife, is like taking the family pictures down the wall. And there's this stirring emotional music going on in the background as Moses is transitioning back. And the kids are maybe crying as they hear the news that they're leaving Midian. And they're like, all our friends are in Midian. We don't want to go back to Egypt. Do they even have In-N-Out Burger in Egypt? I don't know. We don't want to go. But Moses says, no, we have to go. Let's go. And so they start to head back. And it's while they're heading back, as this is being narrated, we're introduced to one of the most important themes of the book of Exodus and one of the most debated themes of the whole book. It's found in verse 21. It says, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. All right, so remember the mission. God comes to Moses. Moses, you are to go back to Egypt and lead the people of God out of slavery. They're suffering under Pharaoh's rule. They're living in slavery, and you are to lead them out of Egypt to a good land where they will live and worship me in freedom. And so in order to do that, you're going to have to go talk to Pharaoh. You're going to have to go confront the king of Egypt and tell him that God says, let my people go. But we've already been told in chapter 3 that Pharaoh's not going to listen to Moses. He's not just going to say, oh, you want me to free all my slaves and let my workforce go? No problem. Have a great time. He's not going to respond well like that to Moses. That's not surprising then when we see that he will not let the people go at first. But what is surprising is that God says here in verse 21, I will harden his heart. I will harden his heart. Talking about Pharaoh. See, we often talk about being cold-hearted today. Someone has a cold heart. They're cold-hearted. But the Bible talks about being hard-hearted, being stubborn and proud. And we see this theme actually repeated throughout the book of Exodus. Pharaoh's heart growing hard. He's unyielding to God. He's stubborn. 
He does not want to do what God wants him to do. Actually, Pharaoh is this epitome of rebellion against God, of human pride and evil and selfishness. And so his hard heart is mentioned about 20 times throughout the book of Exodus. And what's really interesting is the way the Bible describes this phenomenon, Pharaoh's heart growing hard. About half the time, the text will say that Pharaoh hardened his heart. So Pharaoh made his own heart hard against God. About the other half of the time, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then, some of the time, it's left uh, undesignated. It just says Pharaoh's heart grew hard or was hardened. And so we are left to wonder and, and debate, as many have, who's responsible for Pharaoh's hard heart? Who's responsible for his evil, stubborn heart? Is it Pharaoh? Because some of the passages say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So he's exercising his own free will and he's the one to blame. But then there are passages that say that it's actually God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so it's God in his sovereignty hardening Pharaoh's heart and using him for his own purposes. And if that's the case, then us Many of us would ask, well, then is God unjust for hardening Pharaoh's heart and then condemning Pharaoh for having a hard heart? Is God unjust for making Pharaoh's heart hard and then being angry with Pharaoh for having that hard heart? Now, for us today, this can be a difficult theological issue to work through. But I will say that I think for the ancient Hebrews, in their mindset, in their understanding, they would not see this necessarily as a contradiction. They would be able to look at an event or a situation and see both God's hand and Pharaoh's hand. They would be able to see natural causes and human responsibility on one hand and also God's divine purposes at work behind them. See, in the narrative of Exodus, we never see that Pharaoh's let off the hook. We never see that, well, Pharaoh's not really responsible for his evil, stubborn heart. We never see that Pharaoh is some kind of victim. No, he's responsible for his actions. He's stubborn. He doesn't listen to God. He doesn't do what God wants him to do. And there are consequences for that. But the text also shows that God has a hand in hardening Pharaoh's heart in some way. God raises Pharaoh up to display his own power and his own glory over Pharaoh. And so God's sovereign will and plan is on display in Pharaoh's life. And God actually just leaves Pharaoh in his own stubbornness and in his own evil, and God directs that and uses that for his own purposes. But this would raise another important question. If God in some way is hardening Pharaoh's heart, as the text indicates, how does he do that? How exactly does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Because maybe first that sounds unlike God. It sounds like God's being manipulative or it sounds like God's doing something that God wouldn't do. So how does God harden Pharaoh's heart? And the answer that we see in the text is that God simply reveals himself as God. 
to Pharaoh. God simply shows up to Pharaoh and says, I'm God, you're not. I'm in charge, you're not. I'm the king of the universe, you are not. See, in the chapters that follow, we see Moses approach Pharaoh time and time again. And he says, hey, God says, let my people go. God says, you need to listen and obey him. And Pharaoh doesn't want to listen. Pharaoh time and again says, no. Even though Moses shows Pharaoh these powerful signs, Pharaoh still says, no. And then even though God is incredibly merciful and patient with Pharaoh. Think about it. Moses goes to him over and over again. There's a plague that God sends, and then God gives Pharaoh an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to let the people go, and Pharaoh says no. And God sends another plague. And then, in the destruction afterwards, God gives Pharaoh another opportunity to repent, to change his mind, and to let the people go. And Pharaoh says no. And so time and time again, God shows up, calls Pharaoh to obey. Pharaoh says no. God is merciful. God is patient. God is gracious. And Pharaoh, time and time again, says no and rejects him and rejects him. And that is how God hardens Pharaoh's heart, by simply showing up and revealing himself to Pharaoh and then pouring on opportunity after opportunity to repent. And so it's not as if God reaches into Pharaoh's heart and tweaks it in some way where against Pharaoh's will, Pharaoh grows hard-hearted. Pharaoh's heart already was hard. He was already predisposed against God's ways. There's an old saying that says, the same sun that melts ice hardens clay. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. So we see in this passage that God is consistent as the sun to shine down. And he says to Pharaoh the same thing he says to each of us. I am God, you are not. I'm in charge, you are not. And then he's merciful and then he's patient and he shows us grace and chance after chance after chance to repent. But for Pharaoh, who has a hard heart, the very grace and kindness and mercy of God turns him against God in his wickedness and in his stubbornness and in his hard heart. Like clay, his heart becomes hard. But for those of us that have a soft heart, a changed heart, that same mercy and grace and patience of God leads us to repentance. Have you ever noticed that when you say no to something once, it becomes easier to say no to it again? Or when you say yes to something, it becomes easier the next time to say yes to it? So it seems like with Pharaoh, as God comes to him time and time again with an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to obey, and he says no each time, it gets easier and easier for him to say no. And his heart grows hard as God gives him chance after chance. And so Pharaoh becomes for us a warning, a warning for us to not be like Pharaoh. He's this picture of human pride and rebellion. And God confronts each of us the way he does Pharaoh. And he calls us to obey him, calls us to listen to him, to trust him, to honor him, 
Not only that, but he offers us mercy and grace and patience time and time again. And so the question for us is, will we allow that to harden our hearts against God? Or will we have a soft heart towards God's presence in our lives? Friends, it can be really dangerous to come to church. It can be dangerous to come to church and hear about the grace of God, hear about the mercy of God, to hear the gospel week in and week out, hear about God's mercy. It can be dangerous to do all of that, but then remain in our sin, to hear the gospel and do nothing with it, to hear about God's grace and not respond, because each time we hear and do nothing with it, it becomes easier for us to hear again and do nothing with it. And our hearts grow hard and stubborn. Revelation without response leads to a hard heart. We have the revelation of God, a word from God, the very word of God that we're looking at. Each time we hear revelation and don't respond, it leads to a hard heart. But instead, we want to see a soft heart. We want to have soft hearts where we are repentant, where we have a brokenness about us, a contrite heart where we in humility before the Lord say, God, you, you are God, I am not. You're in charge, I am not. Have your way. Or we look at our lives and we see our own sin, we see our own need. We say, God, I need your help. I need you to heal me. I need you to change me. I need you to do something in my life. That's where true Christianity starts. It's with a humble, broken heart before the Lord, allowing him to change us, a soft heart allowing him to work in our lives. We see that it takes an act of God's grace to change us, to soften our hearts, because on our own, our hearts just grow hard, but we need God to step in and change us. And so how do we know if we have a soft heart? Well, it's if we hear the word of God and we're convicted we have a desire to obey, and we realize our sin and guilt, that's a sign, that's evidence that God is doing something in our hearts, that our hearts are being softened. If we're here this morning, we hear a message like this, or hear the Word of God time and time again, and we just don't care, we say, I don't need to worry about this, this is not true, this is a joke, this is whatever, then that's a sign of a hard heart, not receiving from God. And so we see Moses on the way back to Egypt. We get this indication of Pharaoh's heart and what is to come. And I tell you, friends, it's a warning for us to not do the same thing where he hardens his heart in verse 21. Now, the passage continues in verse 22. Look at it with me. It says, Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me but you refused to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. There's a threat here. There's a, a reference to the plagues that are to come, but we're also reminded of another key theme of Exodus, and that's God's love for his people. Do you notice how he talks about the people of Israel, the Hebrew people that are in slavery? He says, they are my firstborn son. So at the heart of Exodus is not just a story about God wanting to free slaves. It's about God wanting to free 
sons and reclaim his children. And he tells Pharaoh, they belong to me. In the ancient world, the, the firstborn son had a, a special responsibility to represent their father in a way that the rest of the children didn't necessarily have. The, the firstborn son in the ancient world had a special privilege of getting a greater share of the inheritance. So they had greater responsibility, greater privilege, greater blessing even from their parents. And so God is speaking of his people as a whole, saying, they are my firstborn son. They all belong to me. They are my children. I want to bless them. Which, again, raises the question for us today of identity. Who are we? What truly defines us? See, the Hebrew people in slavery were most fundamentally identified as the children of God, as being a part of God's family. So the question for us is today, where do we find our identity? What defines us? Pastor Dave Lomas is a pastor in San Francisco, and he wrote a book. I think I've referenced this book before. It's called The Truest Thing About You. And it talks about the issue of identity that so many of us uh, wrestle with today. Who are we? What defines us? And he writes in this book that we often try to find our identity in the wrong places. Some of us, we say, you know what? I am what I do. We say, my career defines me. I find my identity in my work. It's about my job. That's what brings meaning to my life. That's what brings me joy. It feels good to be valuable to my company, to make a difference in the world, to somehow contribute to society. It feels good to have an office to go to each day. And none of that is necessarily bad, but Lomas in his book points out how often difficult it can be when we lose a job, when we're between jobs, when we retire, maybe when we transition to being a stay-at-home parent, because then we start to wonder, well, who am I? If I'm not working, if I'm not contributing to society in a formal, full-time capacity at work, well then, who am I? It's disorienting for us, not just because we lose income, but because we sometimes lose a sense of self. For some of us, we don't necessarily say, I am what I do. That's not a struggle for us. But we'll say, I am what I have. Especially can be the case with the wealth and the prosperity of the Bay Area. The wealth and prosperity around us here. We even say that with a bit of swagger. I live in the Bay Area. Hmm. Yes. We think about our possessions and our image that defines us. Right? I have this status, I have these looks, this family situation, this boyfriend, this gadget, this new phone that I just bought, whatever it might be. I am what I have, my possessions, my status. But again, with those things, each of those things can be taken away. And so if our identity is built on what we have, it's incredibly unstable. It leads to insecurity. Some of us say, well, it's not about what I do, it's not about what I have, but this is a common one today. I am what I desire. It's my desires that define me. 
Again, especially today, this narrative is common. There are these, these impulses within you that you have to get in touch with, you have to discover, and when you discover them, those are your true identity. Maybe your, your dreams or your passions in life. If you dig down deep enough, look within, find them, that tells you who you are. Your passions define you. Maybe it's your, your relational desires, your, your sexual desires. Whole identities are constructed around these desires within us. And we say, well, that's who you are. That's the truest thing about you. I talked about Frozen a few weeks ago, maybe months ago. Disney movie Frozen. We're going to talk about another Disney movie this morning. Is that okay? Okay, we're going to talk about Moana. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I love Disney movies. I'm not like a Scrooge or anti-Disney. We, we love them. We watch them with Zoe. It's great. But if, if you, I mean, let's be honest. If you're getting your worldview formation from Disney movies, there's, we need to have a, a longer conversation about that because there's some serious flaws, right, in the, the, the way they present the world and what it means to be human and, and so on. So in, in Moana, do you know the story? Moana goes off to save the world against the wishes of her, her father. She leaves her island to go sail across the sea and restore peace and hope in the world. And she, she saves the world and it's great. But there's this interesting line in one of the songs before she leaves home. And it's her, her kind of squirrely grandma is trying to encourage her to go off and save the world and, and embrace her destiny. Again, it's not necessarily bad that she goes off and saves the world. That's, that's a great thing. But, but the grandma says this in the song. Maybe you remember the song. She says, you may hear a voice inside. And if it starts to whisper to follow the farthest star, that voice is who you are. Hmm. You may hear a voice inside. If it starts to whisper, to follow the farthest star, that voice is who you are. So that's who you are. That's who you are. There's this, this whisper deep within that you have to find it, and when you start to hear it, that's your true identity. To which I, I hear that and I say, well, maybe, I mean, maybe that is something that God has put on your heart, something that God is calling you to. Maybe that whisper is good, but maybe that whisper inside of you is telling you to do something really stupid. And that whisper inside of you is telling you to do something really unhealthy. And you shouldn't embrace it. And it's not necessarily your identity and the truest thing about you. And so maybe, Moana, maybe. And so with, with all of this, the point of, of the book is that we should not build our identity upon what we do or what we have or what we desire. Instead, we should build our identity on who we belong to. Amen. Amen. <laughs> That's where our true identity is found because everything else is, is shifting and unstable and there are Plenty of true things about us. What you do is important. What you have is, is fine. Those things aren't untrue. Those may be true things about you, but they're not the truest thing about you. God's word over and over again reminds us that the truest thing about us, the most foundational part of our identity, is that we are loved by God. That we belong to him. That we are his sons and daughters. And so identity is not about what you do, what you have, what you desire. It's about who 
you belong to. And so it's important for us to see that in Exodus 4. God speaking to Moses, preparing to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. Verse 22, say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go. See, to Pharaoh, the people of Israel, they're just slaves. But to God, they are sons and daughters. They're children. They belong to him. And I pray, friends, that we would understand salvation and the gospel in this way, that God wants to free you from yourself. He wants to free you from whatever else it is that you are serving so that you can know him, so that you can be a part of his family. Salvation is not just some transactional process where your debt is paid and you're free to go and we'll see you later. I mean, absolutely in salvation, our debt is paid in Christ. We are forgiven of our sins, but salvation in Jesus is about being reconciled into a relationship with God, restored to a relationship with God where we are loved by our Father and we live with him as his sons and daughters. And then, then we build our lives on that truth. We build our lives around that identity. At the core of who we are, we belong to God, and then everything else in our life will take shape after that. And when we realize this about God and about who we are, the response should be worship. The response should be joy and praise of all that God has done. And we see that as the narrative continues. If you look at verse 27, skip ahead a little bit. It says, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so Aaron, remember God's going to send Aaron to help Moses on this journey. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. And then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, right, just as God said that they should. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people. And then verse 31, and they believed. And when they, the, the leaders of the people, heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. And that's how chapter 4 ends with worship. Aaron meets up with Moses. Aaron and Moses go to the elders of the people. They gather them together they tell them what God has said. They perform these signs, and the people believe, and they worship. And I really pray again that that is the response of our hearts as well, as a church, that we would hear about who God is, how God sees us, what God has done, what God is doing in our lives, and that we would respond in worship and praise to him. It's our first core commitment as a church, that we want to make much of Jesus that's why we come together every week. That's why we celebrate and sing and pray to him every week to worship and remember who he is and what he has done. Now, before we close, you probably noticed there are a few verses that we skipped, that we jumped. Right? We read 27 through the end. Now we're going to go back, rewind a little bit to verse 24 and, and read uh, the rest of the passage that we miss. And now, let's just be honest, I just want to warn you. We're about to read are some of the strangest, 
and most enigmatic verses in the whole Old Testament. Like seriously, some of the strangest verses we'll read in the whole Bible. So with that, let's jump in. Verse 24, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Okay, interesting. Verse 25, but Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time she said bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. All right. There you have it. So, I mean, seriously, this, you, you read the commentaries on this passage and people are like, we don't know what to do. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's just, it's there. It's the word of God. We Thank you, God, for it. But we, I, I don't know. I don't know. So, uh, but really, let's, hopefully you've been tracking with me this morning. We want to have a soft heart, not a hard heart like Pharaoh. Okay, verse 21. We need to realize our identity as God's children. Respond in worship. Okay, verse 22. But now we read these verses and we're just like, okay. So God just commissioned Moses for this task, right? Moses, go. Lead my people out of Egypt. Lead my people out of slavery. You are the leader that I have chosen for this task. And now he, he comes to attack Moses. It says he wants to kill Moses. That, that, just, that doesn't make sense. That is very confusing for us. And there's, there's a little bit of disagreement here among scholars about who God is attacking because uh, the Hebrew is ambiguous. The Hebrew doesn't tell us exactly. Is God coming to attack Moses? Or some people say, well, he's, he's going to attack Moses' firstborn son for some reason. Uh, either way, what, what saves the life of whoever was threatened is Zipporah, wife's, uh, excuse me, Moses' wife, doing an emergency flash circumcision on Moses' firstborn son. And then God's like, okay, we're good. So this raises lots of questions. And again, I'm really, I'm not trying to be flippant. I'm just being honest. Like this, scholars are like, we're, we're, we're all over the board on what exactly does this mean? And even the phrase bridegroom of blood, scholars will say, we, we just lost the translation. Like we, we don't know what that means anymore. It meant something back then, exactly how it connects. We're not really sure, but, uh, but, but there it is. But, but what scholars will say, what we can know about this text is that in some way, circumcision, circumcision was the issue, right? Because when Zipporah circumcises Moses' firstborn son, that's when God relents. And so in, in some way here, this is showing us the importance of, of the covenant, right? Circumcision was the sign of the covenant from Genesis 17. God enters this relationship with Abraham and the family of Abraham and circumcision is the sign, that, uh, the outward expression of that, that covenant. And so here, Moses, it appears that he has failed to circumcise his son. He has broken the covenant. He has not upheld the covenant. And so God is angry with him and this, this shows the importance of being in the covenant, of keeping the covenant with God. If you are outside the covenant and breaking the covenant, there is uh, severe consequences from the Lord. But if you are in the covenant, in right relationship with God, then there is life and safety and 
protection from God. And so maybe you have plenty of questions about this verse and that passage, and, and we can talk about them later. You probably didn't, again, come this morning expecting to talk about foreskin and circumcision at church, but really this text shows us the severity of God, how seriously God takes sin, how seriously God takes covenant breaking. When we break the law, when we disobey God, when we don't do things his way, there is judgment. Even for Moses, even a chosen servant of God nearly faces these serious consequences because of this. But if we are in the covenant, we have life and forgiveness and safety with the Lord. And so the good news, the parallel here is that we are no longer living under the Abrahamic covenant, the old covenant from the Old Testament, but in Christ we have the new covenant. In Christ we have this new agreement, this new way of relating to God. Circumcision is not a sign of it any longer. What counts now is faith, faith in Jesus. That is how we enter this relationship with God. And so this is a reminder that God takes sin and covenant breaking seriously, but that for us, the call is to trust in Jesus and embrace him. And then we are blessed by the new covenant and relate to God in this new way, this transformed heart that he gives us by his spirit. And so, friends, I pray this morning that we would have soft hearts and not hard hearts like Pharaoh that are something God is calling you to, I pray that you would respond in faith rather than rejecting him. I pray that you would know your identity as a child of God, that your identity is not found in what you do, have, or desire, but in who you belong to. And I pray that we would realize the severity of being outside of relationship with God and that we would put our faith in Jesus. And if you haven't done that already, that you would let that happen today, that you would put your trust in him for forgiveness of sins and for new life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, even though it may uh, confuse us at times or it, it may be difficult for us to wrap our minds and hearts around. We thank you that you have spoken to us. You've revealed who you are. You've revealed your power, your holiness, and God, you've revealed your love for your people. You call us your children. So thank you for your grace and your kindness towards us. Thank you for the forgiveness and the life that we have in your son, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would be merciful to us, that you would just give us all soft hearts. I pray that none of us would leave today with a hard bitter heart against you, but that you and your grace would soften our hearts, make us able to receive your word and respond to you. We love you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.